Well, for me, experience has taught me that, look, you know, the sun's going to shine again, but there's not tomorrow, it's the next day. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I am so thrilled to have Joe Oblas from Strive. He's the CEO and co-founder of the brand. So welcome to the podcast, Joe. I'm really happy to have you today. Thanks for having me, Christy. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about Strive and let all the listeners know what the brand is all about? And then we'll get into some really interesting stuff about how you came to be the co-founder of this brand. Excellent. Well, thanks everybody for having me on today. And uh, you know, Strive was founded by myself and my partners to really to help Americans snack better. Two-thirds of our population is either overweight or obese, and we feel that there's a great opportunity to provide snacks that you know we can feel good are helping people you know achieve some of their uh, health and wellness goals. So, talk a little bit about the product. I mean, this isn't a typical snack better product. Yours is very different. So, can you just talk a little bit about that? So, our our initial products with Strive circle around the air dried meat snack. Now, mm-hmm. the air dried meat snack is known throughout the world, really in uh, throughout Africa, Australia, Europe as biltong, which is the process of preserving meat without using heat, basically air drying at room temperatures, not to be confused with air drying in an oven. It is air dried by hanging in a room. And throughout other parts of the world, it's known as like carne seca throughout Latin America. It's got a variety of names, but the bottom line is that it is a air dried meat snack. And what it yields is a great tasting product, but has about 50% more protein than most of your traditional jerky style meat snacks and contains none of the negative ingredients with those products. We have no sugar, no nitrates, no preservatives, no chemicals. And frankly, the product tastes fantastic, which you know we're super proud of. And we make all of our own products ourselves, which we're also proud of as well, especially in you know this environment we're dealing with now. So what made you decide this was something you wanted to do? Well, I come from the health and wellness industry and most recently had founded a company back in 2011 that we grew really rapidly and sold in 2016 in the sports nutrition world. And uh, I was sitting with one of my competitors for lunch one day and we decided we wanted to go do something together. And based on our backgrounds with, you know, health, wellness, supplementation, protein, et cetera, we felt that there was a great opportunity to disrupt some categories in the space. And we really looked at the meat snack category first and foremost and saw one that, you know, had seen some disruption over the most recent, you know, five to 10 years. But that disruption meant taking traditional beef jerky and putting a bunch of sugar on it mm-hmm. and adding some other flavors to create, you know, some different flavors. But the premise really was they were very sugar laden. So you're taking a product. I mean, traditional beef jerky is pretty healthy. I mean, it's better than most snacks, not anywhere close to the air dried meat snacks, but it's better than most. And we felt that that was an area that needed some real disruption, not just put sugar on it, but how mm-hmm. could you you know, what kind of products could participate in that category that consumers we felt would gravitate to based on 
nutrition, but not sacrificing taste. So you created Strive and then what? You know, you decided that was true, right? You had a great idea and you thought that the industry needed something. How did you go about creating this product that is processed very differently than what's already out there? Well, I was doing a ton of research online and and I was noticing the product Biltong popping up. And there were some very small online only brands because, you know, we're regulated by the USDA. But if I was to make some Biltong in my house, I could listen on my own website and sell it to consumers without the USDA's approval. And there were some brands out there online. And I was just looking at what is this Biltong stuff? And I saw the nutritional panels and was just like, okay, something's going on here. So I told one of my buddies and I said, hey, I'm going to order some of this stuff. And frankly, it's probably going to taste terrible because typically the healthier a snack product is, the worse it tastes. Yes. But I ordered it and uh, was just blown away how awesome the product was and it tasted amazing. But I noticed the packages that I was receiving were all coming from the same place. So even though I bought product from a company in Austin, Texas, the product came to me from Charlotte, North Carolina, which led me to believe that somebody was making it for them. So very quickly, I was able to determine there was a company in North Carolina called Biltong USA. And I contacted them, talked to the owner and caught a plane the next day out to Charlotte and sat down with him and was just floored. I mean, I was blown away by how awesome the product was, how great it tasted, how consistent it was. And then the nutritional side was just crazy. But then you really find out that the product cannot be imported into this country. And at the time that I met him, He did not have a USDA approval yet to sell it commercially, but he told me that within the next month, he would. So I went back to my partners and basically said, look, there's a huge opportunity here, but we need to be very, very proactive. And we decided that we needed to acquire him right away and scale this up where it could be, you know, scalable and repeatable Mm-hmm. And where we could service larger type customers because, you know, it wouldn't be really worth the while to have a very, very small business. We would only do something that we would see a lot of room to grow. And then while going through the process, I found that there was one more plant going through the process as well. And he was based in New Jersey. So the plant in North Carolina had spent 12 years working with the USDA to get this approved. And the plant in New Jersey had spent eight years and they both were kind of coming to the same finish point. They were very close to getting those final approvals. So we decided instead of just buying one, we decided to buy both. It's kind wow. of like when, you, when you walk into a to a breeder to buy a puppy, you typically walk out with two. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, the overall was what they were doing was so amazing. And when you see how they produce this product and the fact that they were both South Africans that had moved to the United States of, you know, quite a few years before and really wanted to see Biltong take off in the U.S. because it is part of their culture in South Africa. And they're very, very proud of it. And they should be because it's a wonderful product. So, you know, it just made us feel really good that we were getting involved with something that you could really benefit U.S. consumers, but was also a way to build on a product that just checked every single box that we had regarding what made sense as a product to launch. Yep. And so then what happens next? So you find this, you buy these two companies or factories. How'd you do that? Was that your own capital? Did you guys raise money for that? Or did you just decide that was what you were going to do? 
Yeah, first it was our own capital. So we yeah. went and bought these two factories and it was a pretty significant purchase and a pretty large investment for us. Yeah. You know, it just completely changed what our original plan for Strive was. We were going to start Strive and, and thought of it more as like a hobby. Yeah. Just to have something to do after both of us had sold our previous companies. But when we knew that we were going to acquire these, then we realized that we were going to have to raise some capital. And we went out and raised, I believe it was 10 million privately. Wow. And that was to build a factory. So we bought the two little factories that were both less than 5,000 square feet. They were very manual process. And we bought a 55,000 square foot building in Medill, Oklahoma, which is about an hour and a half north of our office because we're based in the Dallas area. And we bought the building and started the process of building a factory. And that was the middle of 2018. And then by the spring of 2019, we had our first USDA approval to start commercially selling that product. Wow. That's fast. It was very fast. I mean, we were all in. I mean, I'm thankful to the people from Southern Oklahoma because they were so supportive and you had an area that really needed jobs. And here comes a plant that's going to bring. And we started off with over, a, you know, we hired 100 Oklahomans there wow. to help you know, build the plant. We instantly became, I believe, we're the second largest employer in that town. Wow. And it was a great process. And our team executed really, really well. So really in the spring of 2019, we started landing customers. Frankly, we had a very successful year. We started doing business with Walmart, with CVS, with 7-Eleven, and it just kind of really started to take off from there. But we still had a product that had so little awareness. Yeah. And what about now? How do you feel about your awareness now? It's still extremely little. It has exponentially grown. So now we're in... We just did a report the other day. We're working with all 10 of the top grocers in the U.S. We're Mm -hmm. working with seven of the 10 top convenience store chains in the U.S. And we've been growing the business very rapidly. So we're now at a point where all of our retail buyers know what the product is and know that it belongs in the category and it's real disruption rather than just the 18th barbecue flavored beef jerky. No, really from a acceptance with the consumer standpoint, we have exponentially grown that. But if I was to venture a just a hypothetical guess, it would be probably about 2% of the U.S. population understands and knows about the air-dried meat snacks. Yep. I think that's probably right. That's interesting. How did you get into all of those retailers? Like, what did you guys do to make that happen? Because that's a big deal. Like you have really, really good distribution, which is, I think there's a lot of things that go along with that. Obviously, you need to support the distribution and you need the consumer awareness to grow. But how did you even go about getting that kind of distribution that quickly? I mean, you guys are a young brand. Yeah, it was pretty surprising. I mean, we got a meeting with Walmart and shockingly, they really wanted to start making a push to having better for you products throughout their store. And we went to the buyer And she literally told us, no better for you meat snack has ever succeeded here. Wow. And she said, but I'll give you guys a start. Are you guys willing to do it? We'll give you a start. And uh, they put us in about 400 stores strewn across 48 states, which was a massive undertaking figuring out how to support that. Yeah, of course. But, you know, fast forward to today, we've been expanded four times and now we're in, you know, we have 7,000 points of distribution at Walmart. That's and amazing. ran over 2,000 stores. So it's definitely been a high growth customer for us. But 
we proved that it worked in Walmart, which is, you know, 165 million Americans walk through a Walmart per week. Yeah. Staggering number. Staggering. But Walmart gave us a shot and we performed so well that it was really a pretty easy discussion as you went to other retailers because they're like, man, if you can cut it at Walmart with a premium product that most people don't know about. Yeah. You know, and we got our first really convenient start with 7-Eleven, very similar. They put us in a few hundred stores and the product did so well that now we're in their national planogram with two of our brands, both Strive and Vacadios. We're chain-wide with them. And, you know, we just recently got expanded at Target, which Target was a new retailer for us last year. And then we recently announced that we're actually next month, one of our brands will be going into the nation's largest natural and organic retailer. Awesome. Hopefully some people can figure that out, but uh, we're in, um, and we're also in like Sprouts and natural grocers and throughout that channel. So that's fantastic. Congratulations. That's a really amazing story, actually. Talk about the challenges that you faced along the way that you had to overcome because you're making it sound too easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not easy. So first and foremost, building a factory basically first, you're going to lose quite a bit of money for a while. Yes, absolutely. Because you can't build it and partially staff it. And you can't, I mean, it's a big investment. You're going to lose a lot of money. And if you're in the bit or in the arena where you have to raise capital, private equity tends to not want to get involved in businesses that are going to have significant losses for a period of time until the volumes really catch up. That's exactly right. So we did raise additional private funds. I believe we raised another 25 million privately and to really grow the business. But, you know, I'd say a big challenge for us is, you know, we really launched the brand in earnest in March of 2019. And we've done all of our branding and packaging internally. So we then started to undertake to put the brand to get it to reflect what we wanted to put into the marketplace and to get consumers to be willing to grab it and take a look at it. And uh, we hired the guys that had done RX Bar, mm-hmm. which was hugely successful. And there were a couple of guys named Scott and Victor who are amazing guys out of Chicago. And they started working on designing our package. Well, mm-hmm. that wasn't completed until January of 2020. So 2020 starts off. We've added some retailers. We're showing great distribution. We got our, all of our rebranding done. We're ready to roll. And then we're at a trade show in Vegas for the 7-Eleven experience. And then all of a sudden, everything starts to shut down. Right. Here comes COVID. So now you're brand spanking new with everything you want to get out to the marketplace. And we just close it down. Yeah. COVID was really the first big hurdle. And we saw an immediate drop in on-shelf velocities, I mean, right away. But then the interesting thing was it started to slowly ratchet itself right back up over the next several weeks. And, you know, a couple of months after COVID broke out, we were right back to normal. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a big challenge. So through 2020, dealing with COVID was our challenge. Going into 2021, we had navigated COVID very well. and We were performing at a very high level, adding a ton of distribution. And then all of a sudden we get to spring of 2021 and the commodity prices start going crazy. So our meat prices that go into our products have ranged in a very tight band for over 10 years. And that's been about, you know, roughly around $2.50 a pound. Well, literally almost overnight, they went to over $4 a pound. So a business that we touted how strong from a margin business we were, because the last normal quarter we had, because now we're a public company, was the second quarter of 2021. We had a 48.7% gross margin, which is astronomical in the snacking space. Yep. 
and then the commodity prices go nuts, labor prices go crazy, all of our corrugate and, and all the other materials that go into making our products have gone up significantly. And it's like, holy cow. So we have to suffer tremendous losses and margin pressure for a period of time because all of a sudden the input cost for our product went through the roof. Yep. Now, as we go forward closer towards the end of 2021, started to see some reprieve in commodities at the very end of the year. And it started to look, you know, kind of positive again, like, okay, now we finally have gotten through all this stuff. And then all of a sudden we have Russia, Ukraine, fuel mm-hmm. prices going through the roof. And it's like, can we please just get a period of time just to operate our business in a yeah. normal environment like every other entrepreneur gets to do? Not yeah. have to try to do this with whatever crazy thing is going on externally. You know, fuel prices went crazy and everyone starts passing on fuel surcharges because you think about it, it's everywhere. Yeah. When fuel goes like it did, and I have a good friend who told me that he runs a trucking company, said a full load of you know, goods from say Texas to California was running around $2,800 per full truckload. Well, a week later, once the, all the, the stuff with uh, Ukraine broke out, that same truck that was $2,800 was now 4000 So crazy. It is so crazy. Like, okay. We're yeah. just going to basically hunker down, continue yeah. to add distribution, which, you know, we announced that we're going national with Costco, which we're already in four regions today, but we're going national with them next month. We got a big expansion again at Walmart, expansion at Target, added at Speedway, all the things that we've been announcing that we've been securing. And frankly, now we're saying, look, we don't know what's going to come for the next six to 12 months down the road, (laughs) but we have seen the meat prices thankfully pull back a little bit over the past few weeks, still way above normal. But we understand now that we're in an environment, even though we have a really rapidly growing brand that people are resonating with tremendously, we're just got to be very conservative and say, look, yeah. we're going to eventually be a large brand because yeah. in this arena, when you control the distribution and you're the first mover of a new category, because we're almost a 90 share of the category, but when you're a first mover, that once you have the distribution, then it's just expanding within the distribution and helping support your retailers so the in-store velocities are there and you're never in risk of being discontinued. So it's all about just execute the business. So you said something interesting. I want to go back to it because I think this is unique. You said you're now a publicly traded company. Can you talk about that? Because mostly brands at your life stage are not. So why? And how did that come to be? Yeah, we always do everything just a little bit different. (laughs) When we got to the third quarter of 2021, we were going to do our what we believe to be our last capital raise. We were going to go out and raise 25 or $30 million. This time we did hire a bank because the previous times I had done it myself. But we were going to go do this. We had received some offers. And out of the blue, one of our smallest shareholders sends me an email and says, Hey, I'm sitting on the board of a SPAC, which I didn't know what the, what the heck that even was. I'm sitting on the board of a SPAC. Can you say what that is for people who don't know? It's a special purpose acquisition company. It's basically a company that's gone public and raised some capital looking to merge with a growth business. Okay. So they had a deal fall apart. So they were looking for a company to to merge up with. And our shareholder asked if we would speak to the sponsors of the SPAC. And we said, sure. So I talked to them and had a really good conversation. 
kind of aligned on principle to what we were looking to do with the business. And they recognized that this is a really large opportunity provided mm-hmm. that we execute. So I took it to our board and our board blessed it. Now, interestingly, we signed a letter of intent in November of 2021 to go public. And then in January, we started the process and uh, we were set to close in March. But then the SEC stepped into the overall industry and basically questioned how SPACs were treating warrants and some accounting and how they were accounting for certain things. So it just basically stalled the entire market. So instead of closing in March, we didn't close till the end of July. Oh, wow. So it kind of delayed our plan by nearly half a year. We finally got it done and came public in late July when the market for small caps and SPACs in particular were pretty out of favor. You had a lot of these companies that were going public that were just an idea. Right, right. They're going to go do a new electric car. They're going to go compete with Tesla and so on. And, and that kind of stuff was, was kind of pervasive throughout the SPAC category. Whereas we were just a growth brand. I mean, we are the definition of what they're really supposed to be looking at. We're a real business and we have nearly 200 employees and we've got a lot of guys who've done this before. So anyway, the point being is uh, we come out public and the market is, we've got headwinds in our face everywhere, the commodity headwinds and so on. It's like, we just cannot catch a break right now. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're a public company now. We've had to take a few lumps along the way, but we're learning to be public. We're not public guys with a tremendous amount of history there. Yeah. We're entrepreneurs who know how to grow businesses. Yep. It's interesting because you don't hear too many people talking about that. And I would imagine that most founders don't even know what the benefit of that or the risk of that would be. Yeah. No, that's very fair. It's tough as a founder for me. I want to grow our business. I want to run our company. I want to come to work every single day, work as hard as I can to advance Strive's mission. That's yep. really what I'm all about. And I'm historically very transparent when talking to people as well. And when you're a public company, you got to be very careful because certain things that you're in possession of some material non-public information. And until yep. it gets released, frankly, can't go talk about it. That's so, so used to in the private world, if somebody asks you a question and you know the answer, you're typically not you know shy about answering it. Right. But you can't do that all the time now. That's interesting. What other challenges did being a public company present for you? And then have you really seen any of the benefits you're expecting yet? The, you know, the challenges are, it is somewhat time consuming. There are some things that you have to deal with that you otherwise wouldn't. It's a bit more expensive. I mean, insurances and things like that are exponentially more expensive as a public company than as a private. Now, the access to capital, I would say, is much easier on yep. a public company. But I will tell you that, you know, what we believe shows the health of a brand and what the private investor believes shows the health of a brand is not always in lockstep with what the public investor feels. Public investor tends to be more, con- or not more concerned, but concerned about dilution. Will yeah. the company have to raise capital again and so forth? So understanding how the company's balance sheet looks as a public company is very, very important. You know, private equity is very, very sharp and in tune with the metrics of the health of a business, in-store velocities, distribution growth, and so forth. Public doesn't seem to focus on that stuff nearly as much as you would think. Yep. And it's tough because you're also a small growth brand. Your growth is going to be somewhat lumpy. And the way the categories reset also is hard for some of these folks to understand. You could be awarded an account that you may not physically start shipping to for six to 12 months, but it doesn't mean you weren't awarded the business and didn't land it. It's just you don't start getting the benefit. 
And sometimes that universe changes. You can have a retailer tell you you're going in in November. Okay, so you believe you're going to do X dollars in November with this new retailer. It's great. The retailer comes to you in October, ready to turn purchase orders in and says, yeah, we're going to make that December now. We're going Uh to make that January. Yep. So some of these big lay-in orders and new retailers tend to be, they'll move around a bit. Doesn't mean you're not going to get there because at the end of the day, it's securing the distribution, providing a great product to consumers, supporting your product and so forth. And that's really the key. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, if I think about all the things that you're saying, you have taken a really truly unconventional path as a founder, right? You spent all your money up front in a way, like you built a factory. Nobody does that. They contract manufacture things until they have enough money and scale to do that. And then you went public, which most people don't do until really, really later. So very interesting, I think, and very different than the typical story. We didn't want to be boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you succeeded. <laughs> no, we've, uh, look, we've met a lot of wonderful people along the way. I love the industry and so many of the other founders and starting to see that, you know, trade shows coming back, being at Expo yeah. West a few weeks ago, being yeah. at Fancy Foods before that. It's the camaraderie and stuff. And just to see everyone's smiling faces out there is just so much it's so much better than that breath of fresh air about, hey, we're kind of starting to get back to business as usual. And, and Expo West was so well attended that we got to see all of our buyer partners. And it was great. And I'm excited for the future that we've got a great business. It's growing really nicely. It's been a difficult environment. I feel that you know we've made some significant strides. Yeah. Uh, we got a lot of work to do. And, and you're right. It's unconventional. And you know, I think at the end of the day, hopefully the results are something that people look at and go, wow, look how far they've come from yes. where they started. I have a couple of more questions. I won't take up too much more of your time, but I'm curious about advice you might have for people. Like, what would you tell someone who was at the very early stages of starting a brand to do, yeah. to not do? You say, go back, go to med school. <laughs> <laughs> you can say that, but you won't. No. You won't. My advice, first and foremost, is no matter what amount of capital you believe in your wildest dreams that you need to execute your plan, you might as well put three to four times on top of that and be willing to to suffer some more dilution up front to have great partners. But the capital is king. And I see so many founders that are either they don't have the access to it or they're nervous to take on the dilution up front and they're undercapitalized, therefore not able to effectively support their brand on shelf. And I I think the other ones is, you know, I hear all the time people talking about mining your network, you know, really kind of building a group of advisors and so forth. And, And look, there's a lot of people out there that are charging for their services and so on to kind of be that for you. My advice to entrepreneurs is you don't need that. What you do is you can build that network on your own. Talk to other founders, come up and talk to folks at trade shows and so on and build relationships. Because I can tell you myself, if an up and coming founder who's starting a new company wants to talk to me and pick my brain. I'm not in the slightest bit thinking about what I can charge them or what's in it for me. I would rather help people avoid pitfalls that we've all taken along the way. And and if you're an entrepreneur, and I've been doing this for nearly 30 years, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to have scars and you're going to have, you know, if you don't have scars, I kind of really question whether you're just really stinking lucky 
or something else is going on because you can't just run that many years and not run into some pitfalls along the way. And look, our experience as entrepreneurs is real. And we're not packaged up by private equity to go sit in a company. We're in the trenches every single day. So build a network of people like us. And then all the people like us have mentors and relationships that we lean on as well. And we could open those type of doors for the up and coming founders. So I think it's just don't subscribe necessarily. And I don't, I mean, I'm not trying to take away from anybody's type of business, but I just think that the young entrepreneurs end up, they're more willing to pay for advice Mm -hmm. just because they see a resume along with it, where I think that advice can be gained without paying for it. And I think you can build longer lasting relationships when it's not a customer client type relationship, but it's more just, we're all in the same thing together. And and I want to see everybody succeed, whether I believe in their product or not. You want to see good people succeed who work hard because being an entrepreneur is tough. Yes, it is. We get up every morning and realize that if we don't perform, there may not be a company. And it's not like going to the eight to five job where you just walk in and know every two weeks you're going to get a paycheck and you're more concerned with office politics. We're out in the field trying to build a business. So that's really what kind of my takeaway. And I've got a lot of entrepreneurs I talk to. And and frankly, I always want to help them at any chance I get. Amazing. First of all, that's great because I think that you know, I think people get scared to ask for advice sometimes too, because they feel like it will make them look like they don't know what they're doing. And sometimes people don't know what they're doing. And that's the whole point, right? Is to find people who can share their stories with you. And that's the whole point of this podcast to help you try to avoid some of those things that have already been done and places that have already been tested. I have another question about, it's sort of about that. You know, you do bump into a lot of things that are discouraging along the way as an entrepreneur. What do you do when you're just like, oh my God, not another issue or problem? Like, you know, you get a few days where you're like, okay, things are looking up and then they aren't anymore. So what do you do? Who do you turn to? What makes you keep going? Well, for me, experience has taught me that, look, you know, the sun's going to shine again, but there's not tomorrow, it's the next day. And you just go to work and work as hard as you can every single day and try to push everything forward. If you're too emotional, you're up and down about every single thing going on, you're going to struggle as an entrepreneur. It's not for the faint of heart. You have to have that real thick skin and realize that people are going to hate on you. People are going to question what you're doing and why you're doing it. They're going to, to some extent, I think that it's an issue of jealousy because a lot of people want to go out and do it on their own, but they're really not willing to take the risk. But I think that uh, you got to have that kind of more of an even keel mentality. And I'm telling you, boy, you better have the desire to work very long hours and be on call at virtually all time. Because that balance, even though we like to still say we maintain a work-life balance and we try to, I mean, I still try to have fun. I go to my kids' sporting events. I try to go on vacation with my family and so on. But I can tell you the phone's never more than 12 inches away. And so people always go, why don't you take your phone and put it away for two weeks? (laughs) Yeah. No, it doesn't work that way. We're on call. And you know what? It's like your baby. And your baby that unfortunately, you know, when you have kids, I mean, your kids start to grow up quite a bit by the time they're, you know, three and four years old, they're, they're a lot easier to tend to than when they were one or two. Business is about the same way. And those first few years, there's no sleep. Yeah, they're rough, rough, but rewarding, I would imagine. I mean, everyone who's doing this kind of work that you're doing, creating better for you things for real, like to really make this country healthier 
from a food perspective, there has to be some real gratification when you see that happening. It's awesome. But having sold companies before, I mean, the financial gratification lasts about 15 minutes. Yeah. So because yeah. everyone always looks at it and goes, well, man, you just had a huge success. And how did it change you? Well, I said, it, well, it changed me pretty good for about 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and then you realize, okay, now what do I do? Now I go back and want to go continue doing what I was doing because I enjoy what I'm doing. Yeah. So, well, it's important. It's important yeah. what you're doing. Right. So I think we get to create some kind of value that we feel that, you know, if it wasn't for us, it wouldn't be here. But then again, you know, how much did we sacrifice? I mean, I joke around a lot and say, well, I could have just spent a few more years in school and gone and became a doctor or, or a lawyer or what have you. But I like the fact of the freedom and people look at it and see the creativity side. But I will tell you that predominantly being an entrepreneur can be a very, very thankless job. Yeah, I would agree with that as one also. Yes. I would agree. That's why you sort of have to get it from yourself and the purpose, like what you're doing is important to the world. And I think that, I mean, we've talked about this and I've talked about it on just about every podcast. The COVID raised awareness quickly of the problems that we have from a health perspective as a country, but people are starting to get comfortable again and not as worried about their immune systems. And so it's a constant kind of reminding people that they can actually heal themselves with food and choices versus constant medication and stuff like that. So I think that's interesting and important work that you're doing. So regardless of the other things and whether it feels thankless sometimes, I mean, that's really important work. And I think it's amazing. Yeah. The level of nutritional misinformation out there in the market staggering. is staggering. Yep. Hey, we're proud of what we produce. Our product we believe is extremely healthy and we stand behind it and we consume our own products as well. So it's always great because I have something to eat every morning for breakfast. Yeah. And- <laughs> but the thing is, I can be guilt-free doing it. I enjoy that aspect as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Any final thoughts before we sort of wrap up? I wish this week would be a little faster. Hi, <laughs> it's Wednesday. It's, like I said, I've enjoyed you know getting a chance. I love to get the message out. Any way we can yeah. get people to understand and try the product is great because you know I do see it a lot where the family, and I'm heavily involved in youth athletics with baseball primarily, but I see it at, and I've coached for a lot of years. When the kids would show up to the game and you look inside their bag and they've got candy and, and they're buying hot dogs and just garbage. Yeah. Or even worse, you see a pile of five hour energies and stuff for a 10 year old. Yeah. I mean, horrible. Yeah. I mean, seeing that kind of stuff, it's disheartening because a lot of times you see if a kid is struggling with their weight or how their body is proportioned and so on. And you look at mom and dad and they're in the same kind of boat as well. Yep. It's like, this cycle is going to continue to repeat itself and nobody's willing to go grab the parent by the back of the neck and say, listen, what are you doing? And it's tough because you just, the best way to do it for me always is to try to be an example and get, when I talk to kids and everything, I stress nutrition all the time and it doesn't necessarily need to be our product. Hey, make some shifts and realize that sugar is really bad for you. So anything you can do to moderate sugar, people ask me how do I lose weight all the time? Because they always go, you know, imply that I go to the gym every single day. Well, I do, but I promise you just going to the gym and not changing your diet and lifestyle is not going to really give you the benefits you're looking for. Diet is the majority and it's fundamental and you can eat healthy. And I'll stress, you can eat healthier because I don't think that some of these really rigid diets are for the most of us, but you can eat healthier 
And you don't have to sacrifice taste because that's usually the big rub is I would eat this, but it tastes terrible. Yeah. But there's plenty of healthy products out there. And I always just look at it. The best way for me to rule something to be healthy is the level of processing that goes involved in its creation. So if you can have something that's minimally processed, whether that's at lunch, at dinner, breakfast, snacks, what have you, you're going to be better for it. And whatever we can do to get people to stop eating sugar or drinking sugary sodas and sugary drinks and so on, because that is just an absolute amazing amount of sugar that gets consumed quickly. Yep. Well, you're definitely doing your part. So give it a shot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time. And if you want, once this posts, I'll put a blog post up as well. We could put a link to the brand in. So maybe we can have some more people find out about you guys. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. What a great interview. Really awesome. Great. Thank you, Christy. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.